0: Please be seated. As you all know, today is both Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day. The confluence leads to some entertaining memes and jokes. Those colorful candy hearts bearing such sentiments as, repent, or the meme where The priest is trying to figure out how to make a heart-shaped ash on someone's forehead. Or the card that pointedly says, Roses are red and violets are blue. Lent is beginning. No chocolate for you. In fact, Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day also coincided six years ago in 2018. I preached that day, too, and I mused about how deep desire and tender vulnerability thread through both the call to remember our mortality and the secular, secular celebration of romance and love, how God loves us passionately. But what I also remember about that day is a different and particularly painful confluence. That Valentine's Day, that Ash Wednesday, was also the day when 17 students and teachers were killed at Marjorie Stonem Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. It was horrific. Because of the anniversary, I've read a number of stories recently about those killed about how their families have lived with the unending loss, as well as about the survivors, many of whom have become brave activists against gun violence. They were and are inspiring those young people. They make a difference. And there is still such a terrible, idolatrous scourge of guns in our country, as we witnessed even today and in all too many of our days. This is not primarily a sermon about gun violence, except in the sense that it acknowledges that we need to repent from complicity in and tolerance of so many evils, evils that grow both in the human heart and in the systems in which we are enmeshed. Rather, I bring up Parkland because this confluence of observances reminds me so vividly of that day. By the late afternoon, I had heard the news of the massacre. I didn't fully take in what had happened, but I knew enough to know that it was really bad. In recent years, we Ascension preachers have become pretty adept at changing our sermons at the last minute, to respond to a crisis in the world around us. We improvise, we incorporate, sometimes we just acknowledge the events. But I didn't do that that night. Of course, I spoke about it later at length, we all did. But that night, maybe because it was so utterly, terribly an Ash Wednesday moment, a reminder that we, and everyone we love is dust and will die. Maybe because a school shooting tapped into my worst fears as the parent of a then teenager. Maybe because the killings made me so vividly aware of the tenderness and fragility of dear sweet bodies and beloved hearts. And also, frankly, because I couldn't see how to interrupt my carefully planned words and then go on. I simply didn't talk about the killing of those teenagers and their teachers, the horror visited on their families, forever. Even though I was thinking about it, and I suspect everyone else in the church was too. I feel shaky thinking about it, even now. But Ash Wednesday is about disruption— It's about the things and the people we bring with us into this space, the knowledge we hold even though we wish that we didn't. Today, that surely includes the relentless slaughter in Gaza, where more than 28,000 have died and so much is turned to dust and rubble. May there be a ceasefire now. May there be a just and lasting peace in that land. Also, the knowledge includes what surely we hold in our bodies of the climate catastrophe, of forests reduced to ash and land no longer arable, the extinction of entire species, the despoiling of oceans. All this we bring before God on this day. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This day we ponder our failures and our regrets, things done and left undone. But really, that's the least of it. Now is the acceptable time, Paul tells the Corinthians. Now is the day of salvation. God's grace is right here. It's right now. It's not waiting for you to clean up or figure things out. This mortal moment is the one we have and God is right here in it with us. It is a time for truth, as the psalmist says, truth deep within, truth about what we know and also about what we don't know, truth about our sins, of course, and the pain around us that we would rather shut out, truth we don't know how to manage, violence and poverty, the uses of our tax money to do wrong, the suffering in which we are complicit. And truth about our questions, our dreams, our calling, maybe to do a simple kindness, maybe to write to an elected official, perhaps to give money for something that matters deeply, to share food or tell a story about something that's precious to us, to pray, maybe in a new way, to make beauty, or learn about something that intrigues and scares us, to listen, to love someone, to give our hearts. The traditional disciplines of Lent, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving all weave together. Prayer is for discernment. We pray with grief and in confession. We pray interceding for someone we don't know how to help. We pray for strength to do what we can. We pray in gratitude and wonder. We have prayers that we dance or sing or write or paint or offer wordlessly as we wander by the river. We give alms to help someone in need, to share in God's work in the world, We give whatever is valuable, money, yes, but other things too, because our hearts are touched by a stranger or a neighbor, the Holy One who comes to us in such mysterious guises. And we fast from food or something else that we consume. We fast to free up our resources and to make space for something new or to experience solidarity with those who have little. The prophet Isaiah speaks about the fast God chooses. He writes to a community focused on worship and spiritual practice. Why do we fast but you do not see? They complain. They are in a time of disillusionment and deep weariness. They have returned from exile in Babylon, but the home they longed for is not what they dreamed of. There are droughts and bad harvests. The community is torn by strife between those who went into exile and those who remained. And as the passage makes clear, there is deep injustice among them. I imagine that the fast God chooses involves clearing away internal clutter and gunk, everything that chokes up the heart. It's letting go of whatever keeps us from being able to love. Busyness, greed, judgment, resentment, disdain. Often I am blocked by helplessness or fear. That dustiness that is our vulnerable, awkward, mortal reality. Here, the deep truth of our hearts is relevant, that we tell ourselves the truth about what we feel, what we long for, what we cherish, what we fear, and maybe then that we share our truth with someone who can help us and support us. Isaiah speaks of fasting that includes this prayer for help and small actions like sharing bread or offering space, like showing up for someone, and also larger actions, breaking every yoke of oppression. The fast God chooses enables the opening of our hearts, and out of that openness it enables us to realize that we belong to one another in a way that makes it natural, if we can, to respond to need and suffering and grief, and to seek our kindred's flourishing. You will call, says the prophet, and God will answer. Obviously, having an open heart doesn't mean that all our prayers will be answered. If only it were that simple. But somehow, embarking on this fast that God chooses enables us to find God present. God as a tender partner in caring for our neighbors and our world. Isaiah uses the imagery of restored human community to express this possibility of hope and healing. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, he says. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. For these people who have suffered exile and division, And for us, so many centuries later, what a vision of renewal and promise, founded on restorative justice and generosity. The prophet also uses imagery from the natural world. God will satisfy your needs in parched places. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Imagine the refreshment and the blessing of that life-giving spring, quenching the thirst of body and soul, filling up and spilling over, flowing unimpeded, sustaining the life of the community. Imagine and feel it in your body, the strength and resilience of a watered garden. Sense the cycle of seeds in the moist, nourishing earth, pushing forth and flowering, ripening and letting go again into deep, deep rest as the cycle renews. The heart that has opened finds community with our human neighbors and the more than human neighbors as well. An anthem was sung at the institution of our new bishop, Matt Hyde, last Saturday, expressing our diocesan commitment to environmental justice, and it reminded me of the wellspring and watered garden. It's by composer and civil rights activist Melanie Demore. It's a richly syncopated blessing meditation. I can't sing it, but I'll try to show you how it goes. Blessed be the tree of life that grows within you and me, steady and true rooted in love, shelter and peace below and above. Sing to the sky, rise from the earth, seasons come round again, death to rebirth. Blessed be the tree of life that grows within you and me. Blessed be, blessed be the living tree. This is a song about grace, restoring, sustaining, freely given and bountifully received. It is about the connection of open hearts that grow the tree of life in the community, the beloved community, even in our awkward, dusty mortality. It extends a constant invitation to begin again, because now is the acceptable time. To return to the confluence of Ashes and Valentine's, we do find that it is all about love, about God's fierce and tender love for each of us and for the whole world, and about our call to learn to love in this Lenten season and throughout our lives in the same way. And so, beloved, I will close with an improv on 1 Corinthians 13 which was written for this very day by the Reverend Maren Tirabassi. If I speak in tongues of justice or spirituality but do not have ashes, I am a self-congratulating vigil, a Sunday service inspired by itself. If I have social media outreach, a labyrinth in the church garden, Bible study in the brew pub, And if I have a capital campaign to remove pews, put in church chairs, and even at a coffee shop, but do not have ashes, I am nothing. If I give to church-wide offerings and go on mission trips so that I may boast, but do not have ashes, I gain nothing. Ashes are awkward. Ashes are dirty. Ashes, like love, are not envious, boastful, arrogant, or rude. Ashes do not insist on a perfect Lent. They do not even need to be in church or be a gimmick getting folks to church. They do not inventory wrongdoing, especially the wrongdoing of others. But they rejoice in the precious now, the very fragility of life, Ashes bear love, believe in love, hope in the possibility of forgiveness for everyone. Endure even times of lovelessness. Forgiveness never ends. As for spiritual practices, they will come to an end. As for precious old hymns and passionate praise songs, they will grow quiet. As for theology and faith formation, believe me, it will shift and change again. But when the full forgiveness comes, it will look more like Valentine's Day. When I was a child, I said, I love you. I cut out pink and red hearts. I sent them to everyone, even the bullies. But when I became an adult, I decided to make it more complicated. Now, in our churches and lives, we have become too fond of mirrors. But someday we will see each other, face to smudged face. Now I love only in part. Then I will love fully, even as I have been fully loved. Today, ashes, dust, and a child's pink paper art abide these three but the greatest of these is the heart. Amen.